All right, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. If you'd like to open your Bibles to number 32. My wife posted something this morning. She's at home, and she asked me to read it. I suppose she thought maybe people on Facebook wouldn't see it. So if they can pull up the photo from, from Beach Camp, that gives the context or uh, will allow you to understand what she was mentioning. So she said, I want to bre- brag on my sweet church family. This is a picture of a lot of them at Beach Camp last week. The last 11 years in ministry at WCC, of course, has had its trials, but these faithful people have been such a blessing to me and our family. I happen to have shingles right now. I asked my doctor why, and she said stress. We were moving after just moving four months ago, and it's definitely not easy as the mama to move like that. And then she put a smiley face. That and other things going on in my heart and mind, I'm not surprised I have shingles. Moving day is Saturday. I'm definitely overwhelmed, but I love God uses the church body to come in and hold me up. One mama that just had her baby recently offered to take over the church cleaning for us this week since it was our week to do it, and we hope to take it back over for her as well in the future. Another friend with two little ones offered to bring dinner on Friday since that's going to be a busy packing day. Another friend from church offered to have lunch all set up for our moving team in the fellowship hall. Two other friends offered to do whatever I needed them to do. My mother-in-law, who lives with us and is also part of our church body, continues to ask how she can help. My brother is always available on his days off to help me with the kids and pick things up at the store and is part of our church body. And, of course, my sister and brother-in-law, who are also part of the church, continue to bless us with our trailer and moving things for us and taking things to the dump. And I haven't even mentioned the different men and their sons that have offered to help us on moving day. I'm continually humbled by my church family and family support. I hope this post also encourages all of us to be on the lookout for ways we can bless other people that are in difficult seasons, especially single people and retired people. I'm always surprised how much these mamas with little kids are helping me. I am just thanking God for this wonderful church family that he has given us. And she wanted to, you to know that she's thankful for each of you as well. So thanks for loving us and being a, being a wonderful family to be part of. So if you have your Bibles open to Numbers 32, why don't you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw, in the context is they're about to enter the promised land, and they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. And this is on the other side of the, the Jordan, outside the promised land. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came, and they said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elilah, Sebam, Nebon, and beyond, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, referring to the rebellion with the 12 12 spies. For when they went up to the valley of Eskel and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land 
that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly fallen me. The whole generation had to die in the wilderness. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. You may be seated. Father, this account has been on my mind for years. I have reflected on it and the significance of these tribes wanting to settle outside the promised land and what it means for us, knowing that the New Testament tells us that these counts are written for our instruction and admonition, that they serve as examples for us, Lord. So it's really not a question of, of whether we can learn from them, but what we should learn from them. And I, I see much here for us, Lord. It, it's been a precious passage to me that has challenged me over the years, and I pray that I could do justice to it and that it, it might give the same challenge to your people as we would entertain settling outside the spiritual promised land that we have in Christ. Help us to look beyond the physical that the Israelites experienced to see Christ as our promised land and the spiritual rest that is offered in Him in Him, and how we might settle outside that at times so that we would experience fully the, the rest and blessing that, that you have for us in your Son. I pray you'd use me as your vessel to impart those truths to your people during this time, and we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen, amen. So the title of this morning's sermon is Settling Outside the Promised Land. Settling Outside the Promised Land. So we briefly interrupted our series or our, our sermons through the Gospel of Luke because I saw something at the beginning of the parable of the prodigal son that I thought was so significant. I wanted to unpack it, and it was the rebellious son coming to his father, asking for his inheritance. Uh, all of Jesus' listeners expecting that father to slap the son across the face and tell him there's no way he's giving him his inheritance, but that's what he did because that earthly father in that parable doesn't represent earthly fathers. He represents our heavenly father who does allow us to have our will to our own detriment. When we push and push and push, there are those times that God stops saying no and does say yes. And so I think this is so important because of the mistaken notion that we might have about God at times that Uh, If he doesn't want us doing something that he's going to prevent us, there are people who might engage in compromise or make poor decisions, and then their response is nothing more than, well, God didn't stop me from doing it, so it must be okay for me to do it. Or he didn't close this door fully. The fact that I was able to walk through it reveals that God must have wanted me to walk through it. And that is simply not the case. There are those doors that we can push open. There are those times that we can be pushy, in our relationships with the Lord, and where he says yes, even when it's not in our best interests. We have looked at a couple examples over the last few weeks. Do you remember some of them by chance? This is the second to last one. We'll have one more example next week. But do you remember some of the examples we've looked at over the last few weeks? Do you remember what happened when God told Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver his people, and Moses kept saying no, 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 until finally God said what? fine, just take your brother, which is basically a disaster for Moses at different times. God gave the Israelites meat when they asked for it after complaining about the manna. God let Balaam go with Balak 
after telling him no. And in this morning's sermon, we're going to see one more example, and then one more example next week, and then we'll be back in Luke 15. Before we jump into this account, I want to begin with a lesson that's going to give us the context we need to understand this well. And this brings us to lesson one. The promised land was a place of rest beyond the Jordan. The promised land was a place of rest beyond the Jordan. So at least for the purposes of this sermon, when you think about the promised land, I want you to think about two things, that it was a place of rest and that it was beyond the Jordan. Listen to a few verses that make this clear. I'll try to go through these quickly so that they sort of wash over you and you pick up the theme. Deuteronomy 3, verse 20, Moses, who's about to die, is speaking to the Israelites as they depart his leadership and will soon find themselves under Joshua. In other words, they're about to cross the Jordan, and Moses said, "'Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they occupy the land that the Lord gives you beyond the Jordan.'" So two things about the verse. Moses said God would give them the promised land and it would give them rest, and that promised land rested beyond the Jordan. Another example, Deuteronomy 12.9. Moses says, You have not yet come to the rest, referring to the promised land the Lord your God's giving you, when you go over the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God has given you, and when he gives you rest. Again, the idea of going over the Jordan that's where they receive the inheritance. That's where they experience the rest that God has for them. The last one, and I chose this one, because now instead of looking forward to them going into the promised land, this is said to them after they're in the promised land, looking back on them inheriting it. Joshua 22, verse 4, the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So with this in mind, that the promised land is this place of rest on the other side of the Jordan, we're going to look at verse 1 in Numbers 32, picking up with the people about to enter under Joshua. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and then notice this right here. They saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. Now, I know that some of these places are not going to be particularly familiar to us, but what you do need to know is the places that are named in this verse that these two and a half tribes are looking at are outside the promised land. They are on the east side of the Jordan. In other words, these are tribes that are, being, uh, are finding area outside the Jordan or outside the promised land attractive to them. And that's where these tribes want to settle. And can you see in the verse why this happened? What are they walking by and not walking by? They're walking by sight. They're not walking by faith. You can read it in the verse where it says, they saw the land. And it's a frequent theme in Scripture for people to get in trouble when they look at things and desire those things that God doesn't desire them. I mean, you can go back to Genesis 3. And you can think about Eve looking at the fruit. You can jump to Judges and you can think about Samson looking at women he shouldn't be looking at or David in 2 Samuel 11 seeing Bathsheba. We tend to get into lots of problems when we look at things, desire them, when God doesn't desire us to have them. And that's the case here. And it's really interesting to see them walking by sight instead of by faith because it causes them to choose the physical instead of the spiritual. 
So the physical that they could have outside the promised land was more attractive to them than the spiritual they could have inside the promised land, which is frequently the case for us. There's something physically we desire that uh, is more attractive to us than the spiritual that the Lord would have for us. And it's really kind of interesting the similarities that this account has with another individual who looked, saw some land, and decided to settle where God would not have wanted him to settle, and that's Lot. And another parallel with that account is the tribes here are saying that they want to settle here because of their livestock. Does anyone remember why Lot wanted to settle near Sodom? Because of his livestock, right? He develops this there's a contentious situation between Abraham and Law. Abraham graciously says, you choose whatever direction you want to go, and I'll choose another direction. Lot sees that the land by the wicked city of Sodom, and he decides to settle there. Go ahead and skip to verse 5. They said, this is the two and a half tribes, if we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Now you see how Moses felt about this request in verse 6. Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? What was entrance into the promised land or Canaan going to involve a considerable amount of? (laughs) War and fighting, right? They were going to have to exterminate these people before you cringe about that, consider God had given them centuries of time to repent of, the, of their wickedness and perversion. I mean, these are demon-worshiping, sexually perverse people that you would have wondered why, if God was just, he hadn't wiped them out earlier. So whenever you perhaps struggle with God's command for the Canaanites to be exterminated, I would invite you to consider that they're actually one of the most dramatic demonstrations of God's long-suffering nature in all of human history. I mean, how long would God have had to give the Canaanites to repent to be merciful? I mean, maybe a month, you know, maybe a year if he was feeling particularly gracious. He gave him over four centuries, the entire time that the Israelites were in Egypt and they never turned from their sin. And so the Israelites are going to go into the land, wipe out the Canaanites. Moses sees these two and a half tribes wanting to settle outside the land, and he knows the effect that this is going to have on the other nine and a half tribes that go to battle. So verse 7, he says, why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? He knows if those tribes don't enter, it discourages the other tribes. Verse 8, he says, your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. When he says your fathers, what fathers is he talking about? He's talking about the previous generation, 40 years older, or 40 years earlier. Do you see some of the similarities between this account and that account? Moses sees tribes that are hesitant to enter the promised land, and his mind goes to the other time tribes were hesitant to enter the promised land. He remembers that rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. He remembers the extra four decades that he's had to wander around in the wilderness because of these rebellious people, and he sees that whole situation happening all over again, and that's why he flares up in anger here, which we'll see in just a moment, at this request from these tribes. So, because of the potential for something similar to happen again, he warns them by reminding them what happened before. So look at verse 9. I'm going to read through this quickly. He says, when they, this is the 12 spies, when they went up to the valley of Eskel and they saw the land... 
they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. And he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they haven't wholly followed me. Verse 12, None of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord, the two good spies. Verse 13, The Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years, until all that generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And now watch Moses really bring the heat here. Verse 14, Behold, you have risen in your father's place. He calls them a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them, abandon the Israelites in the wilderness, and notice this, you will destroy all this people. So Moses clearly tells these two and a half tribes are like the rebellious generation 40 years ago. They're a group of sinful men. He says they're going to increase God's anger again so that God ends up abandoning Israel again. And then finally, he actually said that their behavior would result at the end of verse 15 in the destruction of the entire nation. Can you imagine anything worse that could be said to these tribes that want to settle outside the Jordan than that your behavior could result in the destruction of the entire nation? For Moses to say your behavior could result in the destruction of the entire nation is to say your behavior could result in the destruction or annihilation of all of the people of God, of the messianic line, to do something that has incredible implications to the Messiah himself being able to come into the world. As I reflected on this, I can't think of any worse indictment that could be brought against people than what Moses says right here to them. So, of course, there's no way that these two and a half tribes are going to be able to do what? Settle outside the promised land they're going to have to press in, right? Look at verse 33. Moses gave it to them. He gave them that land on the east side of the Jordan. He gave it to the people of Gad, to the people of Reuben, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land, its cities with their territories, the cities of the land throughout the country. I just would not believe this if it was not written here. I would never imagine after everything that I read in the first 15 verses that there is any way that God would allow these two and a half tribes to settle any place except within the boundaries of Canaan. Especially when you consider what has been God's plan for his 12 tribes for the last five centuries or a ba- thousand years. Basically, going, you can go back as, until God first called Abraham. What has been the plan for these people? What did God tell Abraham? You need to leave your country so that what? I can bring your descendants to a land that I'm giving you. We're looking at centuries of history and covenant promise with God's people involved with planting these 12 tribes within the boundaries of the promised land, and these two and a half tribes were able to set outside of it. It's shocking to me. 
It's one of those places in the scripture that I don't fully understand. I just know when I look at this, there were people that pushed for their way and they received it to their detriment. Now you heard me say that and you say, well, how do you know that it was to their detriment? Well, I'm really glad you guys asked me that. Let me show you why we know it was to their detriment. But first, I want to pause and explain something to you. Luke 7.35, Jesus said, wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. And if you were listening to the communion devotion, then you've really got uh, an advantage here. What does justified mean? I didn't tell Andrew to say this. What does justified mean? Come on, you just said it in the communion devotion. Two words. What are the two words I'm looking for, huh? Declared righteous. Declared righteous. We need to, we're going to say this nice and loudly because this is the gospel. Justified means declared righteous. And so, and it does in this verse too. When Jesus says wisdom is justified by her children, Jesus is saying wisdom is declared righteous or declared to be right or shown to be right by its children or by what's produced from that decision. So you can look at what's produced from decisions frequently to see whether it was a wise or foolish decision. For example, if I say, I've got this great diet, and I want you to follow it, and then you watch me, and I gain weight and get diabetes, (laughs) then the wisdom of my decision is shown to be foolishness. If I said, I've got this great investment strategy, but I end up broke, it's clear my investment strategy wasn't wise. If I tell, if a child told his parents, I want to hang out with these people, and the parents say, I don't think it's, we don't think it's wise for you to hang out with these people. We think they're going to be a bad influence on you. And then the child hangs out with those people and suffers as a result or ends up in considerable trouble. Then it reveals two things. It reveals, I mean, you look at the children produced for the child or what's produced by the child's decision. The child's decision is shown to be foolishness. And the parent's decision or counsel is shown to be wise because what the parents said was shown to be true that the children that their child associated with became a bad influence. And so the simple point is look at what's produced from decisions frequently to see whether something is wise or to be foolish. And in this account, I do not... And when it, here's why I'm stressing this to you. There's many places in Scripture where a person makes a decision and God immediately brings his thoughts to bear on what occurred. You don't have to read very far before you receive God's indictment or, or, his, or his commendation. In other words, God speaks on the situation, and you can tell very quickly whether someone did something wise or foolish, righteous or unrighteous. But have you ever noticed that there are many places in Scripture where people make decisions and God doesn't immediately say what he thinks about it? And what are you forced to do? Determine whether it was wise or foolish. Or you're de- and I would encourage you to do that by looking at the wisdom that's produced or foolishness by the children of that decision. And so I do not believe for a second after studying this out that God wanted these two and a half tribes to settle there. They wanted to settle there. God let them settle there. But it is a painful example, not just of a person, but of an entire group of people wanting something and then getting it to their own detriment. This brings us to lesson two. The two and a half tribes got what they wanted to their detriment. One example of this that I've shared with you in the past, and I mentioned this 
especially for conversations you might have with Mormons, is polygamy. Have you ever noticed that there is not particularly strong language from God against men marrying multiple wives in the Old Testament? Maybe you've even struggled with that at times and wondered why God didn't seem to speak out against it louder through the pages of Scripture. Well, what, what children's produced from polygamous relationships? What, what always characterizes polygamous relationships in the Old Testament? Do you ever see a man introduce a second woman into his life and that relationship or family be characterized by peace or joy or love? Every single instance is always characterized by what? Strife, conflict, uh, turmoil, and so the wisdom of the decision to be polygamous is always shown to be foolishness. We're going to look at the children produced by the decision to settle outside the promised land. Turn to Joshua 22. We won't turn back to Numbers. Numbers 22. Or excuse me, Joshua 22, excuse me. Joshua 22. Look at verse 10. Joshua 22, verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, notice this, the two and a half tribes, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, who settled east of the Jordan, they built an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. So they didn't just build an altar, they uh, built a huge altar. Why do you think they did this? Because they're on the east. Well, what happened when they wanted to cross the Jordan, when the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan? What did God have to do with the floodwaters? <laughs> I mean, they had to part them. It's almost like the Red Sea all over again. So what do you think these two and a half tribes don't want to be doing frequently? Crossing the Jordan? They're removed far from the religious life of the nation. They're nowhere near the tabernacle, and they weren't later going to be anywhere near the temple. They don't want to have to be crossing the Jordan to frequent the, the worship, uh, uh, the life of the nation. And so they decide that they're just going to build their own altar here for sacrifices and for worship. Look what happened, verse 11. The people of Israel heard it, and they said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region around the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, notice this, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So what happened with the other nine and, nine and a half tribes? They flared up, and what were they going to do? They were going to go destroy those two and a half tribes because of their perceived idolatry. I mean, their behavior to settle outside the promised land almost started a civil war. This would not have happened had they settled on the other side of the Jordan within the boundaries of the land. Turn to the right to 1 Chronicles 5. First Chronicles 5. While you turn there, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles... It contains probably the most extensive genealogy or genealogies in the entire Bible. If you look at the headings in 1 Chronicles 5, 
you will probably see that verses 1 through 10 are about what tribe? Reuben, verses 11 through 22 are about what tribe? And verses 23 through 26 are about the half tribe of? This sounds familiar, right? These are the two and a half tribes. We're looking at the history of the two and a half tribes that settled outside the promised land. Now, here's what's interesting. The Jordan, God is so good. I mean, part of the reason that he had them settle on the other side of the Jordan was for their own protection, because what did the Jordan, besides serving as a natural physical boundary for the promised land, what else did it serve as? Protection. It's almost like the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans for the United States, right? Because these tribes settled on the other side, they were more exposed to enemies. And look at verse 26. First Chronicles 5, 26, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath. So God is the one who did this. Don't miss this. It's almost as though God is disciplining them. God stirs up the Assyrians, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Hala, Habar, Hera, and the river goes into this day. But here's the thing. These two and a half tribes are being brought into captivity well before the rest of the nation. They were the first individuals to be conquered and taken into captivity. It's going to be years before this happens for the other nine and a half tribes. And so the wisdom of their decision to settle outside the promised land is shown to be foolishness. Now considering the language of 1 Corinthians 10.6, 1 Corinthians 10.11, Romans 15.4, that all of these things are written as examples for us, for our instruction, the question is not, can we learn from this? And I hope you understand The question with all of the Old Testament is never, can we learn from it? The question is always what? What should we learn from it? How are we supposed to interpret this to find application for our lives? And let me provide a lesson that points us in the right direction. Lesson three. The promised land's physical rest prefigures spiritual rest in Christ. The promised land's physical rest prefigures spiritual rest in Christ. We're, we don't have the time to go to Hebrews 3 and 4. I just wanted to keep this example to one sermon. I actually thought I was going to get two examples in this sermon, but we're, we only can look at this one example, which prevented me from being able to go to Hebrews 3 and 4. But if you go to Hebrews 3 and 4, you learn very clearly there that the promised land was always much more than a physical possession for the people of God in the Old Testament. It was always prefiguring or foreshadowing an inheritance, a spiritual inheritance for the people of God, even during the church age or in the New Testament. Or to make it really clear, Hebrews 3 and 4 teaches us that the promised land prefigures our spiritual rest in Christ. Or maybe another way to say it is those verses earlier that said the promised land is a place of rest for the people of God in the Old Testament. It prefigures or foreshadows a rest, spiritually speaking, for the people of God in the New Testament, us, that we find not on the other side of the physical Jordan, but in Christ our Savior. There's a phys- when, we, when the Israelites pressed into the promised land, 
and experience the physical rest that accompanied their presence there, when we press into Christ, there is a spiritual rest that we experience or enjoy in him. Or should, unless we what? Decide we're going to be like the two and a half tribes and settle outside. Not press in. Settle for less than God's best, which we more than are able to do if we reject what Christ offers us. So despite what some of the hymns teach, the promised land is not a as much as I love the hymns, the promised land is not a picture of heaven. It has never been a picture of heaven, biblically speaking. It has always been, and why is that? How, aren't you glad that the promised land isn't a picture of heaven? Because that would mean when you go into heaven, you're going to have to fight a bunch of enemies <laughs> and resist sin and temptation, right? And aren't you thankful that heaven's going to be a lot better than the earthly promised land? I definitely am very thankful for that. So what does it picture? The promised land has always pictured the Christian journey or our Christian lives in Christ. A few reminders to help this typology become clear. I know I've mentioned this before. I want to go through it quickly. If I go through it too quickly and it's confusing, just come and see me after and I'll try to explain it a little better. Egypt's a type of the world. Joseph goes into Egypt, brings his family with him, 70 people in Egypt that grow to what? Two to three million. I think it's Exodus 12, verse 37 that says that Moses delivered 600-something thousand men, which tells you if there's that many men, then there's probably two to three million people. So do you see how Egypt was a womb for the nation of Israel to grow as a people, isolated from the Egyptians as they lived in Goshen? And so those 70 people go into Egypt, grow to 70, or grow from 70 to two to three million people. Egypt serves as this womb. And here's the parallelism between Israel's journey and our journey. Israel's born in Egypt like we're born in the world Israel grows in Egypt like we grow in the world. Israel's delivered from Egypt to Passover like we're delivered from the world by Passover, our Passover lamb Christ. Israel struggles with wanting to return to Egypt. How many times after being delivered from Egypt did the Israelites look back and were like shocked that they want to return there? But how many times have you been delivered from something in the world and wanted what? Or been tempted to return to it. So before we're quick to condemn Israel, we want to remember that we do the same thing in our Christian lives. Want to return to those things that God has delivered us from. How many times, especially in Kings and Chronicles, did the Israelites face an enemy and instead of wanting to turn to God for help, where did they want to turn? To Egypt for help. And you say, why would you want to turn to Egypt instead of turning to God? For the same reason that we want to turn to the world instead of turning to God. Egypt, this type of the world, plays out so well in our Christian lives when we see that we do the same things with the world that Israel would do with Egypt. Moses is a type of the law. The law is given to Moses. It's why it's called the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. Moses delivers Israel from Egypt, a type of the world, like what convicts us and causes us to turn from the world? The law. Romans 3.20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law convicts us of sin. We repent. We turn from the world to Christ. Joshua is a type of Jesus. 
They have the same name. Jesus is Greek. Joshua is Hebrew. They both mean Jehovah is salvation. Joshua led God's people in the Old Testament into the physical promised land. As the captain of our salvation, Jesus leads the people of God in the New Testament into the spiritual promised land. You know, I was reflecting on something, and if you just give me your attention, because if I had just, this has to be one of my top desires, second to you guys being Christians for this church, is that you would be able to read God's word and just see some of the incredible beauty in it. I was reflecting on something. I hope I can explain this well. When Moses struck the rock and God told him that he couldn't enter the promised land, God was doing so much more through that than it initially looks. It looks like Moses disobeyed and God says, you can't bring the people into the promised land. But what he's really doing is he's showing how the law can only take us so far. And at some point, we have to leave the law and be under Joshua or Jesus. Here's what's really interesting. If Moses had been able to take the Israelites into the promised land, then what would that have communicated? That you can be under the law and experience rest. (laughs) Or that being under the law can allow you to inherit the promise. And that's just not true. If you want to inherit the promise, you need to be under Joshua You need to be under Yeshua. You need to be under Jesus. You can't go into the promised land under the law. Is there any rest under the law? Have you ever tried to keep 613 commands and rested? And so it's just so beautiful how many things God can bring together at one moment. And I I think we scratched the surface of it. But just thinking about how Moses strikes the rock and God says, you can't bring him into the land, but he's doing something so much greater than that. He's showing that the law can only take us so far, and there has to be that point where you transition from the law, from being under Moses to being under Christ or being under Joshua. And just listen to the language of Galatians 3 that I think explains this very well for us. Galatians 3.23, we were kept under guard by the law or by Moses. So just like Israel was under Moses, we're under the law. Galatians 3.24, the next verse, therefore the law was our what? What was it for us? It's our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified. And what's justified? (laughs) Declared righteous by faith. So we were under the law and then under Christ. Just like Israel was under the law, under Moses, and then under Joshua. Galatians 3.25, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Just like Israel was no longer under Moses, when they're under Joshua, we're no longer under the law when we're under Christ. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so to make it perfectly clear, that transition from being under Moses and then under Joshua pictures or prefigures what transpires in the life of every believer where we're convicted by the law and it brings us to Christ where we're saved. And just as Moses could only take Israel so far, the law can only take us so far. Just as Israel could only enter the promised land under Joshua, Moses had to stay outside the promised land and just look on from Mount Nebo to see it there because he couldn't go with the people because the law can never bring you into the rest that God has for you. You can only find that under Christ. And I say that as someone who spent the first 20-some years of my life under the law, trying to be saved by works. Because the promised land prefigures our spiritual rest in Christ, let's talk about what it means for us to 
to settle outside the promised land. We look at what happened to these two and a half tribes. We know there's application for us. So what does it mean for us to want to settle outside the promised land? I see three ways that we did this or do this, and I want to talk briefly about each of them. And this brings us to lesson four, part one. We settle outside the promised land when we don't rest in Christ's part one finished work. We settle outside the promised land when we don't rest in Christ's finished work. These two and a half tribes, they did not press into the promised land and experience God's best, and sometimes we don't press into the spiritual promised land or rest that we can have in Christ. And one of the primary ways we do this is regarding failing to trust in Christ's finished work for us. It just seems to be bound up in us to think that Christ has done 99.9999999999% repeating, but there's got to be that 0.0001% we contribute, right? It can't really be all Christ, can it? I mean, there's got to be something we contribute. There's got to be something we did to be saved. He couldn't have really done everything for us. And that's a false gospel. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's works-based. And as soon as you believe you contribute anything, even the tiniest amount to your salvation, you believe a lie. And there's no rest in that because suddenly it is about what you do. Let me back up just a little bit. Who are probably the hardest workers in the Old Testament? I'll just tell you so don't waste time. The priests, okay? Matthew 12, 5. I mean, here's why I say that. They couldn't even rest on the day you rest. On the day of rest, they worked so hard that Jesus said, what did they do with the Sabbath? They profaned it. Because the Sabbath was a day of rest, Jesus said, Matthew 12, 5, they, the priests worked so hard on the Sabbath that they were profaning it, but they could be excused from doing so because of their job. But the point is, those men never rested. The tabernacle and then the temple, lots of furnishings in them, but no furnishings for what? Let me say that one more time. The tabernacle, the temple, lots of vessels, lots of furnishings in them. But you never read about any chairs or couches or beds because there was no rest for the priests because their work was never done. Hebrews 10, 11, every single priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever what did he do which no priest ever did he sat down at the right hand of god the contrast between priests repeatedly offering sins that can never or sacrifices that can never take away sins yet john 1 29 john the baptist under the inspiration of the holy spirit can look and say Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sins and does something that no sacrifice in the Old Testament could ever do. And because of that, he could then sit down because his work was done. He rested, and then what does, and this is the beauty, this is what we're building up to. I I hope you follow me to get to this point. Jesus rested, and then what does he do with that rest? 
He offers it. He offers it to you, and He offers it to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is not intended to be interpreted the way some false teaching churches interpret it, that Jesus wants you to have a carefree, struggle-free, trial-free life. That's not it at all. We have other places. John 16, 33, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. So what is he talking about there? He's saying you're going to have a lot of tribulation in the world, but one area where you can rest is regarding your salvation. You are not going to have to work to be saved because I have done the work for you. You're going to have a lot of struggles. You're going to have to resist temptation. There's going to be a lot of pain for you on this side of heaven. But one area in which you can rest is regarding your salvation because I have done all the work for you. We can rest in that finished work. We don't have to wonder if we've done enough because it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. We don't have to wonder if we're righteous enough because it's not about our righteousness. It's about Christ's righteousness, which is given to us or imputed to us. The next part of lesson four, we settle outside the promised land when we don't rest in Christ's forgiveness. Part two, we don't rest in Christ's forgiveness. Let me explain a world of difference. I mean, I'd say an infinite chasm of separation that exists between these two. One is this, the conviction you feel when you sin and God wants you to repent and doubting whether you're forgiven for sins you've committed. One of these, completely reasonable and acceptable. The other one, completely unreasonable and unacceptable. You can be convicted of sin. You should be convicted of sin, and you should repent. That's not the same as doubting your forgiveness. That's not the same as questioning whether you're forgiven for the sins that you have committed. And some Christians... They don't spend years convicted about the sin they've committed. They spend years struggling with guilt over the things they've done, wondering if they've been forgiven for those things. The previous is acceptable. The latter is unacceptable. No Christian should be going through this life with guilt and shame associated with the things they've done because Christ has taken the punishment for those sins, and we can rest in that forgiveness that Christ offers. This is why Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean there's no conviction. doesn't mean there's no repentance. doesn't mean you don't feel bad when you do something wrong and repent of it, but it does mean you don't feel condemned about the sins you've committed because you're forgiven for those. We're freed from the shame. We're freed from the guilt because Jesus paid for those sins. We rest in Christ's forgiveness because he took that punishment our sins deserve. And then the last part of lesson four, we settle outside the promised land when we don't rest in Christ's part three, victory over death. Can you think of many things or maybe anything that causes greater anxiety or destroys peace more than the fear of death? Is there anything that troubles us more than the thought, the thought of dying? I mean, is there anything that steals our joy and our peace more than that reality? Because we all know that it's impending. 
And I'm telling you this, and this is not an easy thing to say. It's not easy for me to walk in this. I can fear death as much as the next person, but when we fear death, we are not resting in Christ's victory over it. Please hear me, brothers and sisters. When we fear death, we are not resting in Christ's victory over it. Hebrews 2.15 says, Jesus releases those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And I've always thought this is a particularly intriguing verse because it doesn't say that death itself holds us in bondage. Although that's true, that we are slaves to death, or death holds us in bondage in that we're all going to die. What, are we, what does this verse actually say we're held in bondage by? The fear of death. It is the fear of dying that makes us slaves. Just thinking about dying keeps us in a bondage or slavery throughout our lives. But this verse says that Christ frees us from that. And it's only Christians who have faith in Christ that can be freed from that bondage. Everyone outside of Christ must live as slaves to the fear that one day they will die. And it is only the believer who's confident in Christ's victory over death that can live in freedom, live outside of that slavery and bondage. So as much in 1 John 5, 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So that, that's written so strongly. John, do, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't say, I want you to think, or I want you to hope, or I want you to tend to believe. He says the strongest language possible. I want you to know that you have eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so when we live in fear of death, we're not resting in Christ. We have not pressed into the spiritual rest that he offers, at least not fully, because we're dwelling in that anxiety. We're settling outside God's best for us. So we want to press into that confidence that we have in Christ's victory over death. Let me conclude with this. Just as two and a half tribes chose less than God's best by settling outside the promised land, we can do that too, spiritually speaking. Choose less than God's best when we settle outside all Christ offers us. God wants us to press into the promised land to experience the spiritual rest available to us. And that would be my heart. Don't forfeit what the Lord wants you to have as his children, the peace and rest that comes from abiding in Christ. If you have any questions about this or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you so much for the truths of Hebrews 3 and 4. Even, even though we weren't in those chapters this morning, I believe it's familiar to most people here. And even if not, I hope it would be after today that the physical promised land was always a picture or type of the spiritual rest that is available to us in Christ Jesus. It is not one that is bound by the Jordan or other physical boundaries but as one that we spiritually press into through faith in your Son. And we thank you for that, and we want to fully experience it, Lord, myself included. I think about that verse, I believe it's in Joshua 13, where you told Joshua, there's still, you're old, advanced in years, and there's still so much more of the land for you to obtain and inherit. And I feel like that's part of our lives on this side of heaven, always trying to receive all of the inheritance that we have in Christ, striving to secure more land, live in the promises that you've made, 
I thank you for that, Lord, and pray that by your grace and the gospel's work in our hearts, that would be the case for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.